1: Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So this past weekend kind of marks a seminal moment in the history of laborunionnews.com. And that is sometime over the weekend, which I didn't realize until Monday morning, we had posted our 15,000th article, news article or commentary about labor unions in the United States. And I didn't realize when we launched laborunionnews.com over a year ago that there was so much out there worthy of posting and or commenting on, which we do from time to time. Um, However, that mark was kind of an unintended milestone in the history of laborunionnews.com. So if you've listened to Labor Relations Radio in the past, you probably know that I like to talk about things that I find of interest. And I talk to whoever it may be Um, whether they're union side, employer side, lawyers, et cetera, because I I see so much news out there and some of the articles that we post are just like, hmm, I'd like to dig into that. Well, one of those articles was on Friday. There's an article in the center square entitled Trade Association Sues Labor Board Prosecutor Over Alleged First Amendment Violations. So I open up the article as we were posting it and the basic Premise of it is that the Associated Builders and Contractors of Michigan, which is a statewide trade association, is suing the National Labor Relations Board general counsel—her name is Jennifer Bruzzo, which I'm sure you know—over allegedly threatening to violate employer-free speech rights. The lawsuit says, according to the Center Square— Jennifer Abruzzo, an LRB general counsel and prosecutor, would abrogate employer First Amendment rights by using her authority to change long standing precedent to favor unions. Now, the lawsuit, which was filed on behalf of ABC of Michigan, was filed by a Chicago based non for profit called Liberty Justice Center. And So I reached out to the Liberty Justice Center, he's either on Friday night or over the weekend, wanting to find out if they had somebody who could come on the podcast to talk about it. And so joining me today is LJC, or Liberty Justice Center, senior attorney, Buck Doherty. He's been part of the lawsuit, helped file it, um, along with another law firm in Michigan, and... So what I wanted to do is find out more about it and where the uh, lawsuit is headed, what some of the ramifications are. So without further ado, here's Buck Doherty.
0: You are listening to Labor Relations Radio.
1: Well, Buck Doherty, welcome to Labor Relations Radio.
0: How are you today? I'm great, Peter. Uh, thank you for having me
1: on. So your suit against NLRB GC General Counsel Jennifer Bruzo, is an interesting one. And before we go there, can you kind of give some background as to your, yourself and the center?
0: Sure. Um, I'm a senior attorney at Liberty Justice Center. I've been practicing law for about 20 years. Um, I've been with Liberty Justice Center for the past year and a half or so. Uh, one of the first cases that I was involved with on behalf of the Liberty Justice Center a team of lawyers was the um, OSHA vaccine case, and we were uh, pleased to be able to represent um Brandon Trosclair, he owned uh, several independent grocery stores in Louisiana. The case was BST Holdings. Um, and that was actually the first nationwide injunction that we uh, obtained in the Fifth Circuit, which stopped mm-hmm. the OSHA vaccine mandate um, that was imposed on private employers. Uh, so that was kind of my first uh, first case, which was great. And then three months later, uh, my colleague Daniel Surr and I were standing on the steps of the Supreme Court, so kind of kind of a neat way to start. The Liberty Justice Center has been around several years. Um, kind of really made made its name, so to speak, in 2018 in the Janus decision. That opinion, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, unions could not um, automatically take uh, union dues from from employees. And, and the employee that we represented in that particular case is Mark Janus. And, and Mark is actually a fellow now with Liberty Justice Center. So uh, Liberty Justice Center has been involved in a lot of First Amendment important decisions, really involved in a lot of freedom and liberty type cases, school choice, um, you know, representing uh, parents, uh, representing small business owners, uh, large business owners, uh, kind of pushing back against government overreach. And so um, they, in, after the Janus decision in 2018, they kind of expanded – their footprint and and got lawyers from all over the country and, and Liberty justice center was, was kind of ahead of the game because they initiated remote work pre pre COVID. So I'm actually based in Tennessee and all of our attorneys uh, are kind of scattered all across the country, even though we do have a physical office and are based in Chicago.
1: I wanted to ask you. um, So Janice of course is union oriented and, but it's first amendment Then you've got the NLRB case currently, First Amendment. Do you folks focus purely on labor issues, or do you – and, of course, the vaccine mandate one is not necessarily a labor issue, but it's a workplace issue.
0: Right. So the answer uh, to your question, Peter, is no, we don't focus just on union work. Um, You know, we are are involved in First Amendment issues across the spectrum. Uh, We've been heavily involved in – in-school in choice uh, we were involved in the case in Tennessee where their new um, voucher program, their ESA voucher program uh, was approved to, to be constitutional. We represented parents in private uh, private schools in that particular case. We've also been involved in other cases across the country on school choice so that's a big area that we that we do a lot of work on. In um, general, First Amendment rights across the spectrum uh, that can touch on any areas. Um, as you mentioned, the vaccine cases were more about more constitutional issues and the kind of structure of government, the separation of powers, which um, you know we believe is very important to enhancing people's freedoms. Um, I think Justice Scalia once said, "You know, the word constitution means you know structure, your body, how you put something together." And it's important that that the judiciary is doing what it's supposed to be doing, the legislative branch is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and the executive branch is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and that those those branches don't kind of confuse their roles and try to lurch into other areas where they don't have power. That was essentially what the OSHA vaccine uh, mandate that was imposed on private employers kind of came down to. Uh, And so... Any anywhere federal government overreach, state government overreach, and, and various areas where we're usually involved uh, if we believe that uh, it's an important issue.
1: You don't you don't do like um, second or fourth amendment type cases, though, right? Or sometimes
0: we, we've not, to my knowledge, we've not been involved in any second amendment cases. Uh, I think that the fourth amendment. You know, the, particularly the geofence uh, warrants is kind of an interesting area. I don't think we currently have any Fourth Amendment cases per se, but um, you're right. I mean, it's mostly a lot of uh, the kind of the administrative state that keeps expanding right. and a lot of First Amendment issues that kind of bleed into a d- number of different areas.
1: Well, so this might be a good segue to talk about the lawsuit um, against Jennifer Bruzo. And as the NLRbGC, the um I was reading the case before we got on, and it's interesting because there's a similar case to it, or at least over the uh, issue of the so-called captive audience meetings that was filed last year. But this one is a little bit different.
0: And it is different, Peter. And yes, that particular lawsuit was filed by Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is, Certainly a, a, a friend of Liberty Justice Center and, and a similar organization uh, that does a lot of the same type of work that we do, and, and they primarily focus uh, their efforts in Texas. But yeah, they they filed suit uh, back in October, I believe, and I think that suit is still pending and briefing is closed. Um, I think there was a motion to dismiss. I think essentially to break down that suit, they also brought an administ- Administrative Procedure Act claim, meaning that... Mm-hmm. There was something um, in violation under that statute uh, in terms of uh, jail counsel. That memo. It, it was certainly factually based on the same facts. It was about the memo, uh, as you mentioned, that said employers were no longer going to be able to have what she refers to as captive audience meetings, essentially required meetings at work that employees have to attend where employers can give their opinion on unions that's pretty much been the labor law, you know, good law for 75 years. And she made several comments in her written public memorandum. Um, and that that case was based on that, um, about that she was, you know, prosecuted and so forth. We took a little bit different. And they also brought a First Amendment claim in their lawsuit. Right. We took a little bit different approach. Um, we said, you know, strictly First Amendment. And... You know, she has the authority as general counsel to prosecute cases within the confines of the NLRB enforcement process. We took the position that her memo uh, amounted to a threat of prosecution to prosecute employers in order to intimidate them. So they would essentially give up their rights of free speech, which is the current law, um, and that, you know, they would have to adopt her approved words or language, and we can get into that a little bit later specifically, but, um, and so the the employers were not exercising their lawful free speech rights, and therefore that chilled their free speech, and her threat of prosecution in her public memo uh, violated the First Amendment. And the relief that we are seeking is simply to have the court, uh, you know, have her, order her to take down her public memo from the NLRB, because we've argued that it's not essential for her prosecutorial or investigative functions that she has been lawfully uh, entrusted with as general counsel. And and that's kind of essentially, it's a threat of prosecution first amendment case. And there's a, you know, as we, as we cite in our, our briefs that there's a Supreme court decision back in the sixties called the Bantam books decision, which other courts have kind of taken from that and, and, Made the same analysis,
1: right? Can can you kind of touch on that case? Because I was just reading it as I was reading your your lawsuit, um, and we should probably mention you're not the plaintiffs in this. This is the Associated Builders and Contractors of Michigan is the actual plaintiff.
0: You're the That's attorneys
1: right. representing them.
0: That's correct. Uh, Liberty Justice Center. We are. We have three attorneys of, of, uh, on our team, and we also have have partnered and, and uh, we've engaged local counsel. Miller Johnson, who uh, is based there in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and they have an outstanding reputation for labor law. And so it was kind of a and, – and we worked with that group before on some other cases that are, that are public knowledge. And um, certainly their expertise in labor law and, and we think our expertise in the First Amendment has has proved to be a pretty good merit uh, thus far. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But that's correct. Uh, Associated Builders uh, Contractors of Michigan – is a state trade association. So any um, private employer, any private business in the construction industry in Michigan, I think they have three different chapters uh, within the big umbrella of ABC Mm -hmm. Michigan uh, can join. Uh, Basically they have what they refer to as the merit shop philosophy, which believes that they believe that laws should be neutrally applied and to protect, employees and employers, you know, equally. And and that's pretty much where labor law has been for several years. The labor laws, uh, you know, recognize and acknowledge that employees have certain rights to hear the opinions from both unions and employers. Employers have the right to give their opinions to their employees at required meetings, so long as they don't make threats to their employees or promises of benefit that if you organize in a union, you know, we're going to do this. They can't do that. But under the first amendment, it's always been held that employers can give their opinion. Um, You know, we, we've taken the position that, and Abruzzo's memorandum speaks for itself. So you can read it. Uh, It's part of our, our complaint in our exhibit, but it, it, we think and we've argued that it kinda of takes a leap that um you know, having the required meetings somehow automatically puts it in a category of a threat than an employer is doing and that's not what the current law is. Um so yeah, ABC of Michigan has been uh Jimmy Green is their president and CEO and, and been a great group to work with. Yeah, I've I've had
1: um ABC chapters as well as National on the podcast uh every now and then. So the, I've known ABC for many, many years. Um, so let me ask you, how does it work when, when you're, I guess, co-counsel with the the Michigan law firm up there? That's correct. And so do you, do you both write the briefs? Yeah. You know, here's my draft. Here's your draft. Let's marry them up.
0: Well, we work together on that. And then okay. we are, our attorneys are what's called a, a pro-hot Vici, which I believe the Latin don't, don't, don't hold me to this, Peter, but I think it's for this time only, basically meaning if you have attorneys license from another state, they can associate with local counsel in that particular state. In this case in Michigan, we'll be filing that those that paperwork where we also then can uh you know argue in court at oral arguments and so forth. So we'll be participating together with, with our Michigan team.
1: And this was filed in what the federal court District out of Michigan? I'm trying, I'm scanning up. Okay, so it's the United States District Court, Western District of Michigan, Southern Division. That's correct. Okay. So um, we we started to mention, or you mentioned the Bantam Books case, which as I was reading this lawsuit, it was interesting because I had hey, never heard of it, but um, it's essentially the chilling effect of government threats without it being actually the law that is chilling in that case is the First Amendment rights of a trade association, I think.
0: Well, um, so banned books basically. Then I get considered. This is 1963 we're talking about. So right. I believe it's 1963. So this this happened in Rhode Island, and there was a Rhode Island State Book Commission. I don't even know if such a thing exists anymore. But essentially, what this book commission and it it had. State authority. I mean, it was a state actor, okay? But it determined whether or not books, you know, were objectionable, I think was the quote that was used in the case, or obscene, or somehow violated some type of obscenity law, okay, within within the state of Rhode Island. So this book commission had a practice, okay, where they would send notices. Uh, they didn't actually have prosecutorial power themselves, but they would send notices to book distributors if they believed that certain books that were being published and distributed somehow violated this Rhode Island obscenity law. And so they sent a written notice to some book distributors and said, we think, and here's our list of objectionable books, we think these violate obscenity laws, and by the way, per our duty, we're going to notify the Attorney General of Rhode Island and, and recommend prosecution, and so the book distributors, and there was there was evidence in the record, the book distributors stopped publishing these so-called objectional book books based on the written notice, even though it was later determined that several of the books, and it was not disputed, were not objectionable and did not violate state obscenity laws, and so the fact that those book distributors stopped that publication based on the threat of prosecution from this book commission and their notices. They said they were going to refer them to the AG's office for prosecution. The Supreme Court said that's a threat of prosecution, and that violates the First Amendment because that chills the distributors' free speech to be able to publish and distribute books that are lawful because the books contain lawful Speech and, and essentially the concept kind of goes back to when we have a formal process, whatever it is, whether it's a criminal process, a process, whether it's a, a labor process before the NLRB, or whether it's this book commission process. We want our public policy, wants officials to operate within the system and not to make threats through outside public channels because that disrupts society and those decisions through the adversarial process of the courts are not being able to to go forward. And so public policy says we don't want our public officials making threats. And so this, we believe, and there, we, we also cited a recent um, public policy uh, report that the Cato Institute did. Which has taken the position in this term that they—that's been used to identify this type of behavior—is referred to as jawboning, and that jawboning now with 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 social media and with with public officials having their own Twitter account and whatever forms you know that might happen, that this problem of public officials jawboning is becoming more problematic. Uh, in this case, the jawboning we argue occurred in the NLRB general counsel's public written memo that's posted to the NLRB website, we've taken the position and cited evidence that posting public memos is not required for the general counsel to exercise their essential duties, perform their investigative and prosecution-type duties. So therefore, it's outside of that normal formal enforcement process, and it represents a threat of prosecution based on the language it was used in the memo itself. And so that's essentially the Bantam-Books decision in 1963, and there are some other cases that we, one really important case in 2015, the Backpage.com case that we rely heavily upon to kind of make that analogy where the Chicago Cook County Sheriff used a letter, and certainly we can talk about that more in depth if you would like, um, to make these t- threats of prosecution because the laws at the time, you know, the, the sheriff couldn't do anything because the, the, the laws allowed such speech. That's what we've taken the position that the labor law allows employers to speak right now to their employees about unions. They just can't make threats. And so, yes, that's essentially our our theory is a the threat of prosecution in in the public memo. So let me ask you this. So if we
1: take the Bannon Books case 60 years ago, fast forward it to today, roughly a year ago, Jennifer Abruzzo came out with the memo and the memo itself, if I'm understanding the logic behind this is the chilling effect or the, the results of that memo, her publication of that memo is the chilling effects that has transpired since her issuance of it. Right.
0: You're Exactly. Right. And, So yeah, I'm sorry. Go
1: ahead. This goes to kind of process because this has been my theory for the last year or so. She has a case that, so she issues the memo in say March of 2022, I believe she had, she had actually announced that she was seeking that back in August of 21 in her, uh, I think it was an advice memorandum or, or request for submissions of cases uh, that she did when she first took office or her position. So she issues it in March of 2022. And then shortly thereafter, she's got a case lined up called CMEX or SEMEX or however it's pronounced. But it's a case involving a 2019 campaign out in California that she has submitted to the National Labor Relations Board, you know, prosecuting the company in that case and the fact that they did captive audience meetings in 2019. So, so it's kind of like going backwards and she's using this as the case to fulfill her mission on that memo. And yes. and so the next question that I've had for a while now is since then, since the issuance of memo, she's been um filing complaints or charges against employers for the mere holding of those meetings, like throughout the last year. So employers now they're getting charges the labor board hasn't heard them in dc yet so my theory is that she's got all of these charges backed up so as and if the nlrb rules that that captive audience meetings or mandatory meetings are unlawful all these other companies are going to fall down the like the domino effect so she gets the cmex decision decided and then she's got Apple and Amazon and Starbucks and all these others lined up, then she'll go back retroactively, I think, and declare them unlawful. Does that sound right?
0: Well, yeah. And to be clear, our lawsuit is not trying to interfere with the general counsel's duties in those particular cases that you referenced. I mean, we are just saying she needs to stop going outside the formal process, but to kind of answer your question the NLRA, NLRA, the statute itself. Let's say a, a union files a charge today, alleging an unfair labor practice committed by an employer, a business. The, the statute allows them to actually go back six months. There's a retroactive right. period built into the statute where, if you engage in this alleged behavior, you know, however many times six months prior to the charge being filed, that can be included. in in the alleged unfair labor practice. So there is some type of, as you kind of refer to, a retroactivity built into the statute itself. Um, You know, I I, I don't know her theory. Uh, You you certainly make a um, persuasive argument about the cases you reference. Um, Our point is, well, and, and, and one of the reasons there's some recent behavior that we included in the lawsuit that we believe is, maybe this goes to your point, Peter, where Bloomberg Law on March 1st, 20 days ago, published an article that she was at an ABA legal conference in Puerto Rico, um, essentially trying to drum up business, there's no other way to put it, to be frank, for unions to file uh, you know, unfair labor practice charges against employers. And she was essentially, you know, the article was making the argument that her public speeches and her public memos, which we would call illegal jawboning, are kind of laying the blueprint for unions, for example, to file these unfair labor practice charges based upon her legal theories and what she's going to go to the board, which is essentially the judge I mean, that's what the NLRB board is. It's judge and jury and argue and prosecute her new legal theories to try to overturn, in, in our case, in, in the ABC Michigan case, you know, 75-year-old precedent, which has been good law forever. And employers have relied upon that law forever to, you know, plan their behavior as to how they're going to communicate with their employees. So the recent Bloomberg Uh, article, as it was reported. You know, I think there was even a reference where the conference moderators suggested that uh, the Union Council, who were in attendance at that particular conference, they were making their Christmas wish list, quote-unquote, is how the moderator uh, put it, according to this article, uh, you know, for, for Jennifer, I believe, is how the article actually said. So, again, that's, you know... That's not what prosecutors are supposed to do, and and to be clear, that's what the general counsel position is. It is a prosecutor. Now, granted, she's not prosecuting rape, robbery, and murder, what most people think about when they hear the word prosecutor in, in the criminal context, but she is a prosecutor and she's prosecuting unfair labor practices, and if those employers, you know, she has the authority to, you know, request what's called... You know, make whole remedies where if an employer is deemed to have violated, committed an unfair, violated the act and committed an unfair labor practice, they can be uh, ordered to pay back pay to employees. They, there are informational remedies where they have to include notices and posters and so forth on their. Right. Uh, You know, in their facility, in their business, it says they're not going to violate the law again. So there's kind of a shaming, a public shaming involved in that, in addition to monetary penalties. Uh, They're not going to go to jail for an unfair labor practice like someone in the criminal context. But that's how Congress kind of determined how they wanted to have the national labor laws enforced through this enforcement scheme by having a general counsel as a prosecutor and this NLRB board. As kind of the judge and jury
1: so let me ask you a real quick question the lawsuit was filed what about three four weeks ago
0: and no no just a few days ago we filed oh, was it four, yeah we filed four days ago so you are you are early and you are right on it Peter uh, with your show
1: we're, okay we're... so the first uh, the first public okay it's March 17th is when I saw it is out of uh, Center Square but my so my question kind of to the point you're going to is um, can you amend it? Because yesterday uh, the GC came out with a new set of, or an updated list of prosecutorial priorities and she's got it on the NLRB website. So <laughs> she's going back to your job boning theory. She's, she's still out there boning her jaw. So <laughs>
0: Yeah, we filed on our complaint on Thursday, March 17th, uh, excuse me, March 16th. And then on Friday, we also filed our brief and our motion for preliminary injunction. Um, We already, and I don't want to get into too much about communications on a pending case going forward, but we did receive communications from the NLRB, and and they are aware, and and everybody was aware of, of the lawsuit, at least we think. Um, from the NRB's perspective, on Friday. And then you're right, Monday morning, and that was perhaps maybe my first email from our Michigan local council that I saw on Monday morning. So, you know, we'll see. Uh, she's going to have, we'll see a briefing schedule, probably 28, 30 days to respond to our motion that was just filed on Friday. You know, I anticipate that she will use this new memo, as you point out, this new public memo, uh, perhaps I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll just have to deal with that when that when that comes uh, back to us. So you're right, though, and you're very current to point that out. And we don't know. Uh, the timing seems kind of suspect. I have no idea. Maybe perhaps this was always planned that she was going to issue this new public memo. But we'll we'll see how that's going to be used, and we'll we'll try to you know make those arguments within the within the confines of the court.
1: So let me ask you what the results would be were you to win she would have to retract the memos not talk about it until she wins a case at the nlrb
0: we're just simply asking basically two things to order and to restrain the general counsel from making public threats uh, you know in her memo and we've we also certainly want declaratory relief that this memo violates the first amendment that it threatens prosecution, and we're asking the court in a preliminary injunction to order her uh, to take that down from the NLRB public website. And so we're not getting involved in what she is doing and her office is doing within the confines of the formal enforcement process. Just take it down. The memo itself is from her at the top of the page. It has a, you know Office of the General Counsel capped out, full caps, It's from her. It's signed by her with her initials. It's not to the public. It's not to the to employers. It's not to unions. It's not to employees. It's to her private. It's to her staff. It's to her regional directors. Okay, and so, you know, why are we putting these things? Or why is she putting this on a public uh, NLRB website? We argue that. It's not required. It's not essential to her job performance or job duties as a prosecutor. It shouldn't be on there. And we're asking the court and our relief to order her to take it down because that alleviates the threat of prosecution.
1: But now that it's out there and you've got all these employers and more specifically the unions aware that it's out there, that that chilling effect is likely to still continue, right? If you've got unions that are just watching, you know, they're conducting a campaign to unionize XYZ company, I almost said ABC company, but um, XYZ company, and they know the employers holding meetings with employees, they can file charges because they know Jennifer Bruzo's on their side looking for these types of cases because it's already out there. But hypothetical hypothetically, if she takes the, the memo down tomorrow, you know, next month, the union can go ahead and file anyway. And so employers knowing that aren't exercising because the, it still has not been found to be unlawful to hold mandatory meetings. Correct. Right. So that, but that chilling effect is still out there and is there a remedy for that? Well,
0: as as we take a position in our case, we think the only remedy based on the legal theory that we presented is to have the courts remove her and the jawboning uh, public memo. You know, we think that by doing that, number one, it's really the, the appropriate remedy for our argument because we can't, the court is not going to stop her from prosecuting within the confines of what she's supposed to do. I mean, she was appointed by the president, with the advice and consent of the Senate, barely, I think, by 51 to 50 vote. And she can do that within the confines of the NLRB process. But, you know, our position in the lawsuit is she can't do this outside of that formal enforcement process. So we need to push back on her and to have her stop. I mean, you know, she can prosecute all day long. She can write private memos all day long. She can talk to her staff all day long, but she can't go out and make these public threats through public memos, which is essentially you know by doing that we we argue that she's she's really controlling people's behavior and this this jawboning concept and the term goes back to the you know the great depression and 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 the thirties and forties and and how it was used by public officials to control financial markets, to control private employers' behavior when they could not control it the way they wanted to through actual laws. I,
1: I, I will say this whole concept, um, irrespective of labor law, this the Bantam Books case, for example, kind of if you're to, again, fast forward 60 years, almost goes into the whole um, debate about social media. Facebook and Twitter and you know these quote private entities who are state actors are acting on behalf of the state.
0: You're absolutely right and and this this um, the Bannon books decision and this this concept of jawboning and threatening prosecution it can take many different forms and it's very fact specific. And you know the bannon books it was these written memos or excuse me written notices from a third party state actor. In the back page case, it was the Cook County Sheriff writing memos to credit card companies that were allowing their credit cards to be used on a private website that allowed adult "quote unquote" advertising, classified ads, which were legal. Sheriff didn't like that; wanted to stop those ads on the website. So he knows he can't he can't go to the website itself. And stop it because the laws don't allow it. So he writes a letter, Cook County Sheriff writes a letter to V said MasterCard and puts his letter on official Cook County Sheriff letterhead and says, As the sheriff of Cook County and a father and a concerned citizen, I write to you, you know, blah, 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 blah. Don't let your credit cards be used on this website. Well, he gets sued. Cook County Sheriff argues, hey, that was just my opinion. I'm just a concerned citizen. And mm. the court, Judge Posner, on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, said, no, that's not your opinion because you inserted yourself into the discussion. And at that point, when you're writing as an official sheriff of Cook County, you're making a threat. You're not writing as a concerned parent or a concerned citizen. That is a threat of prosecution. And what you're doing, you know, it's one thing to make an attempt to argue or an attempt to convince people that your opinion is right. It's quite another when an official makes an attempt or an argument to coerce. And so when you go from, you know, attempting to convince and you cross that line to where your communication is an attempt to coerce, then you're in threatening territory, and in that particular case, that threat violated the website's First Amendment rights. And in our case, it's a little bit different because it's an NRB public memo. Your examples, I mean, you're completely spot on, and that's why you know this this concept of jawboning with social media, with Twitter, and going to you know pressuring. We've, we've seen all the Twitter files now. We now know it's not a conspiracy theory. All of this right. all of this communication and emails and we do have a couple of lawsuits going on right now, Liberty Justice Center in, in, in San Francisco involving Twitter um, and Facebook and the government on the other side. So we're also involved in a couple of these type lawsuits there um, with, with our client P&D platform for his opinions on on COVID. But, yeah, we, we've seen this recently, and this seems to be uh, more problematic, this this official government speech that's being used in, in many different forms to control private citizens or, in our case, private employers' behavior.
1: Totally off topic. Are you guys representing Berenson? Are you, are you involved in the Berenson v.
0: Twitter case? No, but we're representing Justin Hart. Uh, Harvey oh, yeah. faced in a very similar case. Justin I know. And I know, J- Justin. Yeah. So and his I'm involved, wife. Yeah. My, my colleagues, um, Daniel Sir and James McQuaid and I are involved in that particular case in San Francisco. Uh, the judge in that case is actually Judge Charles Breyer, who is the um, brother of former Justice of the Supreme Court Stephen Breyer. So mm. um, that's in San Francisco, and that case is uh, still ongoing
1: interesting yeah i i uh i've been following justin for years so
0: yeah justin is our client and um so yeah we're we're and he's actually been on and done some media on that particular case so we, we were certainly happy to to represent him and and you know i think i totally took us off
1: topic on that that's <laughs> okay no, that. no worries no worries it's just interesting when you mentioned that um so do you have a timeline in terms of the NLRB case? Like how yeah, long so, this
0: could take? And Well, in terms of our, you know, we did move the day after we filed on Friday for a motion for preliminary injunction and filed that brief. So under the rules they are going to have 28 days. I don't know exactly when that's going to start to run uh, and, and, you know, Perhaps there will be a briefing schedule, but, you know, soon, it's going to be within 30 days or so, we'll be getting a response, a written response, kind of similar to our written brief, Um, you know, arguing whatever they argue. We'll have, I think, 14 days to file a reply. Uh, Under the local rules in the Western District, we requested oral argument, you know, so you're talking about probably 45 days or so, 45 to 60 days that the written briefing will be closed. And at that point, it will be in the judge's hands to determine if he wants to have an oral argument or if he wants to take some time to rule on the papers. Um, you know, a motion for preliminary injunction is an extraordinary remedy because we're asking for the relief now that he issue the injunction's. And, and the orders having her take down the memo from the website, you know, now um, the case would still go on. And, you know, if the judge were to rule in our favor, they, uh, the general counsel would have the opportunity to appeal, you know, immediately to sixth circuit. Same thing with us. If an ABC of Michigan, if their motion was denied, then they would have the opportunity. So, you know, the written briefs are going to be, complete, probably in a couple months at least, and then we'll just have to see how the judge wants to handle that on on his particular timetable.
1: So, I'm looking at the calendar here. We're talking at the earliest the end of May. No, probably beginning of May, 45 days, right? And then if you have appeals going on, you're looking at maybe mid-summer if not later?
0: If it goes to the Sixth Circuit? Well, I think... In 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 May, sometime I'd say I'd say it was a probably a pretty good prediction. Briefing, written briefs would kind of be closed. Everybody would have their opportunity to make their arguments and, and replies and so forth in the written briefs. And then the judge of the district court would either rule on the written briefs or have an oral have a hearing and let the attorneys come in and make oral arguments. Um, he could do that a week after. Briefs are closed. He could do that a month after, you know, I don't know at that point. So once that, and then he would issue a decision. So once that opinion is issued by the district court, either granting ABC Michigan's motion for injunction, uh, motion for an injunction or denying it either side, the general counsel or ABC Michigan would then have the opportunity to appeal that to the sixth circuit. So I think, Sometime in fairly early, probably in summer, we'll definitely have a ruling from the district court. I'm assuming, and then depending on that ruling, it would get appealed to the Sixth Circuit, perhaps. There would certainly be that option for either side.
1: So let me let me kind of process this as I'm saying it. If if this is an ongoing issue, the Sixth Circuit is is involved with it we're talking months down the road and while that's going on unless the judge says yeah you've got to take it down which she, she would likely appeal but hypothetically in midsummer, if the NLRB were to rule on the CEMEX case or Cmax, I always confuse the two um, and were hypothetically to ban mandatory
0: meetings does that make this case moot? No, it does not, and the reason it does not is because we're arguing that sh- the officials cannot make threats of prosecution publicly. Which, okay. yeah, that's that's our point. So, if if we were to win hypothetically at the at the district court and the judge issues a preliminary injunction as ABC Michigan has requested, she would have to bring that. I mean, unless she, you know, does petition the Sixth Circuit on appeal. That while this appeal is going, you need to reverse the injunction and they can make that determination. But it's quite possible that she would, assuming the injunction is issued, that she would immediately have to remove it. And then whatever happens within the NLRB, you know, the the CMEX case and those cases you mentioned, that is in and of itself. That just kind of goes up the chain through the courts of appeals or U.S. Supreme Court. We're we're saying stop making threats. Take this off your website. And so that would not moot that issue one way, regardless of what the decision is within the NLRB on the substance of, of what's being argued in those cases. So would it,
1: would it however stop any other types of threats of prosecution in other types of areas? Like would it stop her job boning entirely? Well, if- it's a good question.
0: It's a great, it's a great question. We, we, you know, hope that, you know, there might be some um, peripheral relief like that. I mean, obviously, that's not in play in the facts of our case. We're just arguing about one specific memo, the captive audience memo. But, you know, it's kind of a big deal, we think, that, you know, if ABC is successful, that the RD General counsel's order ordered to remove that and to retract that. You know, if you want to backtrack, I think President Biden's one of his first acts, when it may have even been on January 20th, when he was sworn into office that day, is he fired the yeah, Peter firm, Rob. Yeah. NRB general counsel. When, right. And there was a lot of controversy over that because, you know, the NRB board is appointed by the president with advice and consent of the Senate every five years. Okay. So there, there could be some overlap with various presidential administrations that are coming in and going, it doesn't track exactly with a new president. Same thing with the NRB General Counsel. I mean, it's a four-year appointment process, but the, the current General Counsel at the time that the previous President Trump had appointed, I believe he still had several months to remain in that position, mm-hmm. and that was one of President Biden's first acts, I believe, on January 20th to fire him I know that some senators were very vocal about that. I believe Senator Rand Paul thought that that was legal and not wasn't able to do that. Anyway, uh, Abruzzo's appointment, her confirmation, it was quite controversial from the beginning, from the very start. And um, she's been very aggressive. We, We kind of take the position and argue in our in ABC of Michigan's lawsuit, you know, that she's she's writing these public memos left and right. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but that's certainly ABC of Michigan's position. And we did have, you know, some good evidence that um, with Mr. Greens, the president of ABC of Michigan, his declaration where he said, you know, our employers are threatened by this public memorandum, you know, but for the general counsel's uh, memorandum, um, they they would engage in lawful speech they would give their employees their opinion on unions they wouldn't do it in a threatening way you know at these required meetings they wouldn't do it in a way that would force the employees uh, you know to pick to pick sides so to speak they would give their opinion and that's been the law for 75 years and so they just want to be able to do, what they want to do, and, and what has been the law, and not to kind of have these changing uh, rules and evolving laws every time there's a new administration that comes in and appoints a new NLRB general counsel. And so, you know, I think ABC of Michigan has made a good argument. We we are happy to to make that and advance that argument on their behalf and their members to uh, to kind of have it put a stop to this you know, jaw outside of the normal process.
1: You know, you mentioned Peter Robin and the firing of him the day of the inauguration, and the irony of it is that <clears throat> Jennifer Bruzzo, acting on behalf of the NLRB, defended the right of the president to fire the general counsel whenever he wants. And, and touted the victory on that when they won the case, and I don't remember what circuit it went to, but they touted it, and I'm thinking, ironically, that means if a Republican president comes in and fires you on day one, you just defended his right to do that. So it's fascinating how the the machinations of government work.
0: Yeah, and and that's a good point. And you know, again, to be clear, she's not prosecuting you know crimes or criminal acts, but right, you know, we we do, I think, kind of want our prosecutors whether they be in the labor context or the criminal context, to not kind of worry about what party you belong to and just to follow the laws and to not try to kind of game the system, so to speak. So you've got the right vehicle of the right case based on your personal preference that you can then go and prosecute before the national labor relations board. Um, Yeah.
1: Are you following it all? So this gets to another GC memo in which she is trying to overturn a 1985 case called Tricast. And Tricast is where an employer explains, you know, once you unionize, we can't deal with you directly, which is factually true, excepting in limited circumstances. But it's one of those jawboning type of memos that she put out there that for those of us that do have meetings with employees and explaining the law and all that sort of stuff, when you're, um, it's not that difficult to adjust, which is fine. However, it's, the way she's wanting it expressed is not exactly even matching NLRB's own publications. So it's, you know, it's having a quote chilling effect on in some ways, not necessarily necessarily chilling, but it should just have to be more precise.
0: Yeah. And I haven't looked at that particular memo. I think in our lawsuit, we do reference in the Bloomberg uh, article that I believe there were over 50 memos or 50 issues. Yeah. I don't know if they've actually, yeah, that she's identified or that she did identify when she first became uh, general counsel back in 2021. So, you know, as I mentioned, that particular memo is not part of our memo and, and all of these jawboning, I threatening of, of public communication through letters or through memos or through notices, whatever the case may be, social media, they really are fact intensive. So we're not taking the position that every memo she's ever done, you know, is is, is, is an illegal jawbunning or violates first memo. We're simply taking the position on this particular memo and captive audience. It is. And by the way, there are some media that even refer, have dubbed her the memo writer and, and written these glowing articles about right. her. So she likes to write a lot of memos. And, um, you know, the, the jawboning, to be able to put a label on something, it's one thing to be able to say that's not right. When you first hear about, well, she's writing memos, well, that doesn't kind of get people's attention. But when you kind of understand this whole concept that goes back to, you know, the Depression and World War II and and jawboning from from. You know whether it was FDR or JFK or or, or Truman or Nixon. I mean, it's not confined to one political party or the other where officials, you know, you hear about the bully pulpit, and that's fine when officials want to try to convince that their ideas or their views or their opinions are right. But when the official kind of crosses the line and then they start inserting themselves into the discussion that they're going to do this, this, or that, then that can get into an area of coercion that's not allowed. And so you really have to look at all of these different governmental speeches, in this case, the different memorandums, as to whether or not, you know, what was actually said? What did this official say? To whom was it directed? How was it communicated? And you really kind of have to get into the weeds on, on you know, the memos or the letters themselves.
1: Yeah, that's – I. That's why I think it's going to be interesting when you get a chance to look at the ones she just issued yesterday. Because she said, essentially, I think there's 15 or 17 more that she's looking for cases on. In a, yeah, in and we we'll go
0: back to her August 2021 memo. But. Yeah, and, and just to use that analogy, and I'm not, not talking about that particular memo that she issued yesterday. We'll, we'll see if she'll... I assume our attorneys for counsel will make arguments and we'll deal with that in the, in the court process, but just consider in a different context, consider if a criminal prosecutor went out and they really wanted to maybe prosecute a lot of murders or rapes or robberies, would they go out and incentivize and encourage people, you know, to, 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 to make a lot of charges or, or, or to, I mean, you're almost incentivizing people to actually commit the crimes. It, it, You know, so the charges can be brought in, or you're going to get a lot of charges that are not meritorious. You're going to get a lot of charges that everybody's going to be filing charges. Um, I don't, I've never seen prosecutors in the criminal context kind of behave in that manner. And again, I, I realize that a prosecutor, a labor prosecutor, it's a different concept, but the way that the NLRB forms its policy is through the adjudication of cases. Number one, That's that's it. And they have a prosecutor. Now, prior to 1947, if you can believe it, the general counsel and the board themselves, they were all wrapped into one. So you had prosecutor, judge, and jury. They were all the same. In 1947, Congress separated out the general counsel and made the general counsel role independent from the board itself. We included this information in our complaint. So, you know, the language that's used, the general counsel, that doesn't sound real bad, like an attorney general or a prosecutor. But that general counsel position, according to the National Labor Relations Act, is separate and apart from the board itself. The board, they're the jury and the judge, those five members. Right, right. And the, and the, and the general counsel is supposed to prosecute. And the way that labor law is promulgated, so to speak, is through cases. Number one. Now, the board does have the authority to issue pro- proposed new rules. They can come up with new rules, and they must go through the Administrative Procedure Act. They must, you know, include those rules and give the public notice and comment. Okay, so there's a formal procedure for the board to go through that process, and we we point this out in the in the lawsuit. But they don't. The general counsel is not given that authority under the Act to kind of engage in.
1: No, rulemaking. The, the rulemaking itself. Yeah, part of the problem, um, and I've been involved with labor relations, you know, first 10 years on the union side for almost 40 years. So all the way back to the Reagan era. And the problem, and you'll hear this from both sides actually, whenever a new administration comes in from the opposing party, the swing of the pendulum with labor law goes back and forth. And I don't know a way how to depoliticize it other than not have it as a political entity, which it is, and maybe oh. just put it back to the courts.
0: Well, you're right. I mean, and and that's really not helpful to employers. It's not helpful to employees. And, and you know, it's not even helpful to the union. I mean, nobody knows the, what the rules are. The goalpost is always moving, as you point right. out. The change of administration, and that's not really a way – to have a good labor you know, system so everyone knows the lay of the land and how they need to act and, and what they need to do for everyone to be able to kind of go about their business. So it's a great point you make. And,
1: well, uh, yeah. you know, I'm old enough to remember back about 20 years ago, not quite, but close to 20 years ago, when the unions, the AFL CIO, was actually protesting outside the NLRB with signs that said, shut it down close the NLRB for renovations. Of course that was during the Bush era, right? So, you know, it's, and now I guess on the business side, if you had a bunch of business people out there saying, shut down the NLRB, the unions would be like, see, they suck, <laughs> but they now do you, it themselves.
0: Yeah, you're right. And that's, uh, I'm not sure that that's what Congress intended when they enacted the NLRA and this whole administrative scheme, through right. the board. but that's, that's the current system that we have. So we have to kind of live with it. We're just saying, or at least ABC Michigan is saying in its lawsuit, you know, operate within that system. Don't go out of the system right now um, because you're threatening us and you're threatening our members. You're threatening employers across the country. Right.
1: Well, Buck, we've been on for about an hour and I, I appreciate you coming on and going through this because it's an interesting and fascinating case. And uh, of course, for the last year or two, it's just been a fascinating world with labor relations anyway. But
0: It is, and, and we really appreciate uh, – I appreciate you having me on uh, on behalf of Liberty Justice Center and, and uh, our client, ABC of Michigan. And, and we look forward to uh, your continued coverage as this case progresses along. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Peter. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio.
1: So that was Buck Doherty with the Liberty Justice Center talking about the case that was filed on behalf of the Associated Builders and Contractors of Michigan against the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo. And it sounds like the case may go on for a little while, but as and when we get an update to it or if there's some sort of resolution, we'll be sure to invite him back on Labor Relations Radio. in any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1 888 668 6466 or leave a message or a comment under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. Have a great week and thanks for listening. Wash my sea. Whoa, black cream, tame to that
0: place. Wash my scene. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.
1: Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoyed Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.